Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. All right, today we are joined by Amelia Beeky, who is a DO, a neuromuscular medicine specialist, and an osteopathic manipulative medical practitioner. Amelia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to start this season off with a new question. And since you're one of the few DOs we've had on the show before, you have some specific insights here. What is the biggest challenge you think facing residents in your specialty right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And my specialty when I completed my residency was called neuromusculoskeletal medicine and osteopathic manipulative medicine. And in the single accreditation system, this didn't exist for MDs in training. And so it's been adapted and it's now known as the osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine residency. And it's unique in that it is, you know, smaller. It historically has been only DOs. And there has been some question because it is small and it's often been held in smaller hospitals, you know, looking at how that will still be able to happen in some of the requirements, the ACGME. So that is one question that we have. And then what is its role as being formerly only for DOs and now possibly for MDs as well with opportunities for MD students to come through? do some osteopathic boot camp, you know, for lack of a better phrasing for it, and then join in this program. And so while those might be seen as obstacles and challenges, I view them also as opportunities that we have to expand understanding of the osteopathic concept and broaden the applications in a lot of different settings. So that's where we are in what is now the ONMM world. That's great. Yeah, there's usually such a disconnect between the DO and MD kind of philosophies and education and training. So I think at least having the option for them to integrate a little bit better might decrease some potential arguments between the degrees and give a better, well-rounded knowledge of what the other person has been taught and expects when they're doing patient care. And it looks like you do a lot of different coaching aspects. You have this osteopathic life where you founded that, you're a chair for some coaching organizations here. Can you give us a little brief introduction of what those are, what you do in those institutions? Absolutely. So I have always seen osteopathic concept as being widely applicable and available to everyone. So for me, it's not just for DOs. And so this opportunity, like in my residency and my specialty exists, I see that everywhere. And if we can bring these principles forward throughout the practice of medicine by all physicians, you know, to be adapted and adopted is really what the goal was in the foundation of osteopathic medicine by my understanding, right? It was how can we support and contribute to care in an optimal way? How can we honor the health in this practice? And so I founded this osteopathic life a number of years ago, and it has a podcast component, a blog component. I had programs. And what I realized in this past year is I had programs without any clarity on how you could actually participate in them. <laughs> so they were more suggestions you know, than actual format. And so I learned to put structure behind them, which is an osteopathic concept, so they could be functional and actually have participation. And coaching has been a really great tactical and tangible way to bring forward the osteopathic concept. So I have developed a program, a CME program for physicians, MD and DO, that's 12 weeks long. And we teach and we group coach and we have one-on-one coaching. That's really about prevention and treatment of burnout, but also right owning your health, 
exploring big ideas, seeing all that you have to give. And that began to evolve in seeing that we needed coaching, right? Coaching could be a benefit for the health of the medical profession in a variety of institutional settings. And so that was the birthplace of coaching for institutions, which is a collective of physicians trained as coaches. Again, probably mostly MDs, a few DOs in that space as well, all specialties, all areas of the country and actually internationally as well. And we meet weekly and we look at how we can bring programs into medical schools, residencies, hospitals, healthcare systems, and medical associations. And the one unique relationship that also stemmed out of there was Amway Ignite, which is from the American Medical Women's Association. And it's a program to support women in medical education, all the unique challenges that can be presented. And we've had the opportunity to implement coaching programs as a tactical means of support. And so I lead most recently a team of 10 coaches coaching 60 medical students across six schools in the country to help support them in this process, particularly in this season, as we come, right, you were one day after the first part of match week here. And so how can we be supportive of our students? And so those are the different main ways that I'm working at the moment. Wow. It sounds like you have your hands full for sure. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot of students interested in these concepts. And yes, as we're not sure when exactly this episode's going to release, but since we're in match week right now, this is definitely something that the audience might find useful in the near future. So hopefully we can bring some great value to them. And that kind of brings me to the next topic is in your writings and in some of your past works, these terms that we assume we know what they mean, but you mentioned worthiness and power, worthiness and value, power and responsibility. I'm just kind of curious how you define these terms and how the audience can really benefit from having a better understanding of these. Yeah, so important. And this is key and totally appropriate at any stage as we lead up to the match, through the match and beyond. The concept of worthiness as immutable, you know, and that was the one space where I really leaned into that and wrote about it was that you can't improve it and you can't detract from it. And that can be in both parts, relieving and disappointing because you think, I want to bolster it up, right? I want to do all these things to make sure I'm worthy, right? And I also then in the relief standpoint, I'm so glad to know that the things that I'm doing aren't going to actually diminish my worthiness. But that can be hard because in medicine, right, especially at the medical student level, we are taught, right? You need the grades, you need the numbers, you need the experience, you need all of these external things to be worthy of admission, right? But your worthiness is intact, right? Just for being human, for being a sentient being, it is there. And all those other things are in the next tier out, right? That's in the next space of absolutely, you know, be hardworking, be driven, have those achievements, but those are the things you are doing. That isn't who you are. And being able to separate that is where that power is found, especially in this week. You know, when we do see, if we didn't get that match announcement, or we got the one that said, sorry, right? You didn't match this time. Here's the soap process. And we can think, right? I've been rejected. You know, I'm not enough. I am not worthy. And instead being able to see, okay, right, I was not selected for a program this year. That already is a very different response. I was not selected for the program that I listed. Okay, right. And this is an opportunity, right, to find a different way forward. And I don't pretend that it's not disappointing and frustrating and hard in that moment. Absolutely. But at the same time, being able to separate it from, right, this is a thing that didn't happen and not this is me and who and how I am and what it means about me as a person can make for a totally different experience. And that's really what I hope to bring to medical students at all stages. We see that again, you know, at step one, that's a key and core place where we begin to see kind of the diminishment of our worthiness and to remember, okay, it's always intact. And 
these things happen. And absolutely, I can be sad and disappointed and mad. And I can work for systemic change. I can work for my own personal reform to find ways to strengthen my capacity. But worthiness is intact as a stable foundation under that. It's a totally different experience. Yeah, it definitely seems like that's the first reaction is going to be a negative one and kind of limiting that negative self-talk and keeping your worthiness, your self-confidence intact is also not something we're really trained to do. You're just kind of assumed to work on it on your own and get to a better place on your own. But I think during the pandemic, especially more people have finally become more aware of other resources out there, also trainings, just things to do to keep a more healthy mindset when things are not going well, as they haven't been going well for a lot of people for a long time now. And I remember you were using, I would call this a tactic, I suppose, where you do your and statements. So yes, I'm worthy and I'm showing up was one of them that you gave previously in your Kevin MD post, which will link in the resources for the show notes. But can you kind of describe how to maybe properly use that and what students can do right now if they're struggling with personal issues? Yeah, thanks for asking. And is totally my favorite word. You know, if you just had to pick one, that's it, because it also holds so much power. So just like we said, there's no problem. And it's totally appropriate to be disappointed. You had this dream, you had this vision, you know, and it didn't happen. And so you can say, I'm disappointed and, right, I'm seeking an alternative. You know, I'm frustrated and I'm willing to listen to what might come from this. And so putting it in that space, and I think about the only and and kind of buckets or spheres. I picture these kind of concentric circles of how we engage with ourselves. And so in the only space is what we guarantee, right? So it is, you know, how I'll show up, what I will do, the amount I would study even. And then the and might be your goal that you can't totally control. And that's really hard because you think if I study enough, I'll get this grade. You know, if I do X, Y, Z, I'll get this place. But really, we can't, right? We can't control what comes out, what the averages of the class, what the you know residency program might rank. And so letting that go, you know, aiming for it for sure, but not tying everything to it when we can't control it, that is actually so relieving and our power goes up because we're taking responsibility for ourselves, right? We're taking ownership of that which we can control and are putting in that next tier out the parts we can't. And we're giving that responsibility appropriately to those who can control it. Now, if there are things left, if there are some orphans, you know, of locuses that need control and need responsibility and don't have them, then we can have a discussion. And that's where really the systems reform comes in. Like who is actually responsible for this? Who can actually control it? And we see some misguided assignments, you know, in the profession of medicine, especially. And that's exciting to me because it means we have opportunity to change that. But it begins for ourselves with saying, okay, what can I actually control? And it's usually a lot of things. It's usually plenty of things. And then taking responsibility for those brings our power back to us. And it gives the power and responsibility back appropriately to others for what they can control. And then we actually can interact in a much more cohesive and functional way. Yeah, I think one of my favorite statements is if you reach your goals, you didn't set them high enough. So that's a good way to think of this. You're setting really high goals and it's perfectly okay to not reach it exactly when you want to or to the degree that you want to, but you just keep chugging along and keep slowly progressing and that's the best you can do. Absolutely. You know, I do a lot of training and with, you know, weightlifting or with running, like you find success at the margins, right? You find it at failure. So it's that rep you couldn't lift that actually tells you where the strength is and what you're building. So absolutely pushing for that and knowing that failed rep isn't a failure of you, right? So, okay, right. That's the weight. And next time, right, we can move toward there or we put these pieces in place to get to it. So I love that you bring that forward. 
This episode is brought to you by findarotation.com, where students and preceptors can schedule rotations with ease and security and schedule your next clinical rotation. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. Especially during this past year with COVID, there's been such significant impact on a lot of people, but especially in the healthcare community, on students, on physicians, on all staff in the hospital setting. How would you maybe use some of these techniques or how would you recommend them being used to help people in this particularly difficult time, hopefully a once in a lifetime situation? Absolutely. So I think supporting your own health, right? That's our responsibility, right? An opportunity we have as well. And that it can come in lots of little ways. Sometimes we have, again, really grand expectations. And I say this for myself, historically, you know, like I said, exercise is a key outlet. And if it wasn't, you know, two hours of this meaningful workout, it didn't count, like don't even do anything. But looking at some micro doses, minimal effective dose can be so helpful. Like what can actually be supportive here? So it might just be getting up and moving. For me, I sit a lot more, right? So I'm in front of a computer much more as many of us are. So just standing up and moving around, you know, doing five minutes of stretching or breathing periodically through the day can count. And then, right, there's the and. I can also have a dedicated workout space. Finding what's meaningful for you. So for some, right, it is movement. I think we all should have some type of movement. How vigorous that is might be to your you know, own preferences. Nutrition is so key and core, getting back to basics. So how are we caring for ourselves? And also how frequently are we feeding ourselves in this time? I know for me, again, being at home and working, it's so much easier to keep snacking, to have food mindlessly. And so applying some of that concept of being mindful in that space. And then for me, really, it's connection. And that's been a big challenge in this time because we don't have the usual interactions and especially for students. And I would say that first year space has been the most difficult, right? Because that collaboration, right? You, that you're in the trenches together, that, you know, you can have these experiences with a group has been lost. And so when we are coaching students, that's the number one thing we hear back, right? So I just don't feel like anyone is with me. You don't have anyone to talk to you about this. Who's having the same experience. And so getting creative with our connections is super important in this time and knowing Right, Zoom counts. It's helpful that we can have these video meetings, but at the same time, you know, maybe it is going old school, making a phone call, right, and speaking to someone because we do get screen fatigue. And I found actually that I've made more phone calls in this time than I have historically. Writing letters, you know, and then finding safely, of course, who you can actually be in person with, whether that's being outside for a distance walk or hike or masked, you know, in those spaces, and then not taking for granted the different relationships that we have. You know, how can we reconnect? And then, of course, connecting to ourselves, right? So tuning in to how you're feeling and what you need, because a lot of times in the busy of the world, we don't tune into that. And we can distract ourselves enough to not have to and kind of get away with it for a while. But this time, and we could look at, right, silver linings, a gift of this time is that we are called to actually tune in to hear what it is we need and begin to answer that. I love that. Yeah, it can be very difficult when you're taking on a large task in particular to really get started. It's overwhelming. So whether it be working out, whether it be starting a new project, a work project, a school project, just dedicate yourself to like starting it and just sit down, say, I'm going to give this five minutes and you'll find that now you've broken the hardest barrier getting started and you can continue on much, much longer afterwards. So just getting that initial momentum can make a big difference. But I find that it's still often much more difficult when we're talking about the mental health and social aspects of this. And I know you also discuss sort of taking back your power besides maybe getting started on projects like we're discussing. 
are there different techniques or tactics that might be more beneficial for the other like mental health components and uh, similar to that? Yeah, and I think this builds on the worthiness concept is to do an I am exercise. And this is so fascinating, even for me. So in my podcast, I have an I am statement. And I talk about physician, coach, writer, entrepreneur. And then I think about, well, is that who I am? Or those things that I'm doing? And noticing how often we interchange them. And that's not a problem, but knowing that, right? And paying attention to that and saying, okay, right? I'm a physician. That's the thing I do. And I'm a writer. And that's the thing I do. And that's great. Those really are in my and space. And that's really important as well, because if we are identifying by this thing and then it goes away. So for me, it's one year ago today, actually, when we're recording that my practice closed secondary to a PPE preservation order. And so if I'm a physician was all that I was, that can be really devastating, right? What does that mean? You know, am I non-essential? Does it even matter what I'm doing? But instead of saying, okay, this is something I do, right? And here is a detail around it. That means right now, right? It's not appropriate. So we can send PPE to the ER. Like this makes sense. But if I said, right, and I often think, you know, I eat, sleep, breathe, osteopathy, you know, and bring that forward. And that can be true, but also, right, be something that I do. And so then also bringing the I am back to kind of characteristics. So it might be, I'm kind, I'm creative, I'm thoughtful. And those begin to personalize it a bit more so we can own some of that. So I have students really work through that exercise and bring both together. And remember that all those I am things that you do do have value, right? And you get to bring them forward. And I encourage students to bring that with them into the space. Don't do all those amazing things, right? That made you this amazing applicant for medical school and then leave them at the door, right? Bring them with you and see how they can actually contribute to the health of the system, to the health of your patients right then and there. I'm so impressed with the current medical students at the changes they're making, you know, programs that they develop, ideas that they have, you know, ways that they see for inroads into optimizing patient care that we don't, right? For lack of experience, for our generationality and where we are. And so I really encourage, let's practice that I am and bring all of it with us. But knowing too, that I am and the things that you do don't have to be limiters, right? They can simply be opportunities to express yourself. I think I still have trouble with that when I say I am. I don't know what I am or who I am. It's <laughs> It does get so connected to the tasks that you're doing or maybe past accomplishments that separating that out just seems really difficult at times. And having some guidance can really help students take it sort of to a more personal next level. Yeah, we had a really interesting exercise, you know, speaking of the match. And so I had students share, come up with kind of their elevator pitch of themselves and what they were going to bring to their specialty that really reflected them, right? So it might've been, I had this past work experience. And so that means in internal medicine, it's going to contribute in this way. And it was really beautiful to see what came through. And we had, I think, in that space, you know, four IM, a couple EM and anesthesiology. And so you might think internal medicine, maybe all of it looks the same, but it was very different. You know, they saw the specialty in different ways and they saw what they can contribute in different ways. And so just bringing that through, right? So I'm going to bring this to this specialty and this is why I chose the specialty. And it was really fantastic to see. And so I'm hoping we'll use it as an intention exercise going to intern year, because we might imagine, right, some of the challenges that arise, so remembering that as they go through. Sounds like a great journaling exercise and follow your own thought process throughout, you know, the education process and beyond, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, I do want to make a little shift here, since I know you have a lot of thoughts on osteopathic principles and philosophies, and for those that might not be too aware of the differences, especially, guessing, mostly MD students that you know, we hear X amounts from school, from forums, from general conversation, but don't actually know in detail what some of the differences might be. 
Do you have maybe some key points that you think are really important for all specialties to know about? Yeah, and this is so great. This is one of our assignments. I run a virtual rotation for third and fourth year medical students, osteopathic medical students, and this is one of their assignments. So I'll try to do justice to that which I ask them to do when they write this. And so when we talk about osteopathic physicians, we make a point that they are fully licensed physicians. And we saw, right, with the physician to the past president that there was confusion around that because osteopaths in other countries aren't physicians. So that's one key point to bring up to a general audience to remember these are you know, two types of fully licensed physicians in the United States. One are MTs and one are DOs. So that's a key foundational point. And osteopathic medicine was born out of the curiosity of what can we do more than the current medical model? And that was at the Civil War times. You know, and so now we have had so many advancements in medicine, but that question is still there. So how can we continue to contribute and support health of patients to bring the focus back to what's working well, what's working right, and honoring the capacity of the patients to be well? And we know, right, by default, we want to be well. That, that's the nature of our system, but right, we're not existing in a vacuum. You know, So if we were just a ball moving in space, we just keep going in the same direction at the same speed. We have all kinds of things that can knock us off course. And in osteopathic medicine, we're seeing how we can remove barriers to health. And we think about the manipulative treatments. So oftentimes we'll think about manual medicine with osteopathic physicians. And that is a tool, right? That's a tool that we have. It's a skill that we learn from the earliest stages. But what it offers us is the opportunity to listen to our patients in a different way. We're listening with our hands from day one of medical school. We're doing examinations on one another and building rapport. And then we're taking that listening with us into the clinical space, whatever specialty we should happen to choose. And so it offers us the opportunity to know that other things are being said besides the words that a patient offers, that their body has a message to offer, and that there's opportunities to support them physiologically by removing restrictions in their body, but also through restrictions between them and the world around them. And we see that right in access to care. So how can we remove the barriers in that way in their support systems? Like we just said, how can we make connections that are going to be supportive of them? And that structure, so that's a tenant structure for optimal function, really comes up for me in a lot of ways, internally and externally for patients. And something that often comes up and I will have MD colleagues say, well, I do all of those things, right? Maybe not the OMT part, you know, but I think of patients in that way and mind, body, spirit, and absolutely, you know, what are the barriers to health? And to me, that's fantastic news because that's always been the goal is to bring these concepts forward ubiquitously in the practice of medicine, right? So that we can all together focus on health and optimal care for patients. And that really is my hope with the single accreditation system is that we will begin to share these concepts more broadly and all of us will benefit you know, ourselves, bringing forward our own health, seeing what's going well with us and how to tune into that and then optimal care for patients. Yeah, I think a single accreditation sounds like an interesting aspect because these differences can be confusing even for physicians, let alone for patients. And then you do get the different viewpoints from different types of physicians and different types of practitioners too. So that was one that I had always heard too as well you know, especially family medicine or, or primary care, well, I do all those same things too. So what's really the main difference besides the osteopathic manipulation? And then the second one that I used to hear a lot prior to doing my rotations a few years back with a few DO practitioners was the assumption that osteopathic manipulation was the same as chiropractic manipulation. But it's my understanding that they're very different philosophies and different practices. Is that accurate? And that's a question I get a lot because my specialty, I do utilize hands-on treatment for the majority of my patients. And so that's usually the question from the patient in my room, right? Oh, I have a chiropractor. Is this going to be the same? 
And I always offer, well, I've never had a chiropractic treatment, you know, so I can't speak to it directly, but my understanding is I do have some common threads, right? So earliest classes of chiropractors kind of brought osteopathic philosophy and went with more alignments. They used more high velocity or cracking type techniques. And so there are some common threads and like anything, right? There can be really holistic and, you know, comprehensive chiropractic practitioners, and there can be DOs who may not look at that as much. But the big distinction is just like we had to iterate in the first question that DOs are physicians. So they go through medical school, they go through the full comprehensive training, and they can move into any specialty. You know, so there's that piece. And that's underlying the decision when we evaluate a patient to apply the procedure of osteopathic manipulative treatment is that physician mindset and training. So that is one key and core distinction. And the variety of techniques are often quite different. You know, we certainly can use the thrust techniques, you know, the snap, crack, pop, and osteopathic medicine, I will say is less and less commonly used. And there are a wide variety. That said, chiropractors also have distinguished themselves and kind of broadening their skill set as well. But that sense of alignment, you know, is usually undercurrent versus in osteopathic medicine. It's what is the function of the whole system and seeing how that works together. And then the caution that I have is if we are being signed up for, right, chiropractic treatments multiple times per week, whole family for extended periods of time. To me, that's the concern that we're not making thoughtful considerations in doing exams and, you know, appropriately assessing patients and applying the treatment versus just saying like, I'm going to treat everybody this many times, you know, this frequently. And so those are the ways that I exercise caution there. And again, remembering that your DO is also your physician, right? And that is a distinction to pull forward. Okay. Very good points. Besides those two, that seem to be some of the more common questions. Are there other ones that you get a lot that might be helpful to clarify for the audience? I think it's important to note that again, a DO can be in any specialty. And so we might think again, that you're a bone doctor, you know, that comes up because we have osteo in the name or that you are a primary care physician. And originally the majority of osteopathic physicians were, and in general, there is a higher percentage, you know, many osteopathic schools will send physicians into primary care specialties. And that's one of the missions is right to put primary care physicians, especially in underserved areas. And so that is present, but a DO can be in any specialty, you know, from neurosurgery to primary care to OBGYN to cardiology, all of that is totally accessible now. And that's something to note. I think people often forget that component. Correct. Yeah. My internal medicine hospitalist rotation was a DO physician as well. One of my favorite rotations too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think we've clarified a lot of the differences, and it's interesting to hear how the integration of education is starting to come around. Do you have any other pearls of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience? Yes, I think it's so important that we you know, practice what we preach. And so from that student standpoint, and I would say from there, you're closer to the possibility, right? And we can see in the practice of medicine that perhaps we might dedicate ourselves in a way that takes us away from our own health. And if we can start from the beginning, putting those key and core patterns in place, all the better. And what I've seen that's so encouraging to me, and when I was a program director, it was somewhat challenging, was that I find, and this is a generalization, but the current generation of medical students and younger residents are calling for more boundaries, right? So they're asking, why are we doing this? You know, we see that with work hour restrictions and being clear on that, you know, voicing what it is, what's best for you, what you can do, not from a lack space, right? So if you say, you know, this is as much as I can give, the more we can actually have that in the system, the more we'll evaluate and examine and say, well, is what we're doing logical? Like, should we keep doing it just because we have been doing that? And so I encourage students to like ask those questions, you know, ask the why, 
and get curious in that space. And I encourage, you know, those who are with me and older to be open, to be receptive to that, you know, to say, maybe we would have benefited had we asked more of those questions. And while it can be challenging, because sometimes you want to say, because we are, right, we're just meeting at this time because we are, we're just doing this because we are getting thoughtful and saying, well, yeah, why are we doing that? And if you have a good reason, fantastic. But if you answer that question and think, hmm, like maybe it would be better to do it this way, we could benefit from that. So maintaining our own health and then maintaining that capacity to really uphold your own boundaries and you know, challenge the system, not in a contentious way, but that curiosity, right? Stay curious about why it is what we're doing. I think we will all actually benefit from that in the practice of medicine. I love it. Well, where are some resources or ways that the audience can communicate with you? I know you have a lot of projects here, but what's the best way to reach you? <laughs> yeah, well, this osteopathic life is the most common place you can find me. So that's .com, at Gmail, on Instagram and Facebook. And then Coaching for Institutions, just as it's written, www.coachingforinstitutions.com. That's for that collective of physicians looking at bringing health to medicine at all stages of education, training, and practice. It's another great space to look for resources. Perfect. And we'll definitely add those into the show notes. Well, Dr. Amelia Beeky, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experiences and wisdom with us. Thanks for having me. This was great. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time. <laughs>